please open your Bible or open your phone or tablet to Titus. We're in Titus chapter 1, continuing our series through the book of Titus. Back in the 1980s, when I was in elementary school, I remember a recruiting slogan used by the U.S. Marine Corps. And the end of the commercial went like this. We're looking for a few good men. Some of you remember it. Yes. What made it memorable for me, what made a strong impression on me, I thought the uniform was cool. But one anything else, the commercial I'm thinking of was about a sword. And the sword was cool. So I remember that. But that phrase, that slogan that they used, could be used to describe this part of the book of Titus. The mission Paul gave Titus on the island of Crete. Last week we began our study and we saw that Titus was a disciple of Paul, a partner in ministry with Paul, and Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete to assist the churches there. Now, I ask questions as I'm reading the Bible. Questions occur to me, and I don't know if this one occurred to any of you, but how did the churches get there to the Isle of Crete? Who started those churches? We don't have any biblical record that Paul or Barnabas or anybody else started those churches on Crete. We don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we do read about Crete early on in the book of Acts. You don't have to turn there, but according to Acts 2.11, there were Jewish Cretans. That's people from Crete. That's not some sort of alien, but Cretans present on the day of Pentecost. They were probably visiting Jerusalem for Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit surprised them and many other people by allowing those people from other places to understand Peter preaching in their own languages. So it could be that some of these Cretans who were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost took the gospel home with them and started churches there. Hopefully you've had a chance to find your place. If you would stand, please. And I'm going to read these verses for us. Again, not a lot of verses. Today we're looking at chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. You follow along, please, as I read for us. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless... The husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless. As a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, as we look into your word right now, we ask for your help. Holy Spirit, you are the ultimate teacher. And we ask that you would teach us today, that we would understand what these words would have meant to Titus and the people on Crete who were first reading them. But in addition to that, Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand how they apply to us today. 
For we know that your word is a mirror. And as we see ourselves through the mirror of your word today, would you show us anything that needs to change? Lord, maybe as we look at the mirror of your word this morning, we're encouraged by your grace working in our lives, the changes that you have made in us, and we rejoice in that also. Father, I ask for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to teach your word accurately and boldly this morning. That you give us all ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have, as usual, a few questions that I would like us to ask and answer as we go. These are the questions that I'm attempting to answer for us as we discuss this section this morning. First, why did Paul leave Titus in Crete? Another question, what's an elder? Related to that, who is qualified to be an elder? And then we might as well try to answer the question, who cares? Why should I care what the qualifications are for an elder or why I should care about what an elder is? There is a key word, and for you young people working through that handout, it's going down the center column there, it's the word blameless. There's no other word you remember from this section today. Please remember the word blameless. We'll talk about what that means. And I have three main points, three basic ideas that I'd like you to understand and hopefully remember when you leave this place today. First, God's design for the church includes order, structure, organization. Second, every church congregation should appoint biblically qualified elders. Both of those First two points are in our first verse, verse 5, that we'll get to in just a minute. And then in the remaining verses, verses 6 through 9, we're going to see that believers in general, and men in particular, should pursue these qualifications. So that's what I'm hoping to bring out as I've studied this week and what I'm going to share with you. Verse 5 is a purpose statement. Paul tells Titus why he left him in Crete. So these are his marching words, and he has two primary tasks that he is supposed to accomplish. Let's look at verse 5 again. For this reason, I, Paul, left you, Titus, in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So I like it when the Bible has statements like this. It says, this is why. This is it. Doesn't get much clearer than this, does it? For this reason, Paul says, I left you in Crete. He left him temporarily. It's not like he snuck off in the night and then waved from the ship. He, he did it on purpose. This was by prearrangement, and it was intended to be temporary because he was planning for Titus to rejoin him later as his partner in ministry. But he left him there for two reasons. The first purpose, the first reason, is that you should set in order the things that are lacking. To set in order means to organize or to straighten out. This is the only time this term is used in the New Testament, but it's used outside of the Bible. In Greek, it's a medical term. It means to set a broken bone. The root of this in Greek is ortho, as in orthopedic surgeon. What does that kind of doctor do? Helps get bones back in order. Some of you or your kids may go to an orthodontist. What does an orthodontist do? Helps you get your teeth straight. Well, he's saying, Titus, one of the reasons I'm leaving you there on Crete is so that you can set things straight. 
for mending, for healing, for organization. Now what needed to be set in order? Their teaching and their living needed to be straightened out. What was lacking? One commentator said order and leadership. That's what was lacking in the churches at that time in Crete. What about the second purpose? Second purpose, that you should appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Appoint elders. If you have a King James, for example, you might have the word ordain there. This word means to set down, to establish, to arrange. So if we are supposed to, if Titus is supposed to appoint elders, it would be really good if he knows what that means. We have to know what an elder is. Well, the way we use that in common English, an elder would be someone older than you are. I was taught as a little boy, trying to put some manners in me. If an older person comes in the room, you should stand up. That kind of thing. Or if you're going to meet somebody, you should stand up and shake that person's hand. You should do that for your elders. Help an older person across the street. That, that's true, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about just older people. Not even just older men. Elders, here's the definition I'm going to give you. You can probably find a different one in your study Bible, but this is what I came up with this week. Elders are spiritually mature male church leaders. Spiritually mature male church leaders. They're probably not going to be teenagers, so they may be older men. But age is not as important a factor here as spiritual maturity. Is the person growing up or grown up spiritually? That's what an elder is. Now, it would also be good for us to know, as we read in our Bibles, we read other books of the New Testament especially, there are other words that are synonymous with. There are other words for elders. Here are some of them. Because we have this word elder in verse 5. Two verses later, in verse 7, we're going to see the word bishop. That word is also the one that Paul uses writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 2. Synonymous word. When I first preached on deacons and elders years ago, it was in the other community building. And the young people at that time decided it would be fun. We're going to start calling him Bishop Bob. So for a couple of weeks, I was Bishop Bob. Thankfully, that kind of died out. But that was fun to them because it means the same thing. Bishop, elder are the same thing. Overseer is another term. That's the one that Peter uses. He has a verse, 1 Peter 2.25. Overseer and shepherd are both in that verse. You can look it up later on your own. Describing Jesus the chief shepherd, the chief bishop overseer. And then the other one that is most commonly used for us in our English setting, our culture, would be pastor, and that's in Ephesians 4, verse 11. All of those mean the same thing. They're used interchangeably throughout the New Testament by Peter and Paul. Now, I'd like to point out the grammar, because I believe that all scripture is given by God. It is inspired. It is breathed out by God. And I believe the very words are. So when there's a singular or plural, it matters. So look at it. What does it say? The word elders is plural. Every city is singular. Therefore, I believe that Paul intended for Titus to appoint two or more elders in every local church congregation. Now, the number of elders is not defined. The ratio between elders and people in that congregation, that's not defined. But the idea is that for every church congregation, there should be two or more, a plurality of elders. That's what the Bible says. Now, before we begin this list of qualifications for church leaders, I'd like to make some high-level observations. 
is I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. We can talk about, and we will talk about what most of the individual words mean. But before we do that, I'd like to point out three things. First, this passage assumes that these church leaders are males. Men and women are equal before God. Men and women are created in the image of God. And male and female reflect his glory in different ways. But God has established distinct roles for men and women in the home and in the church. That does not mean that women are inferior. They are not inferior. It also does not mean that women can't serve in the church, because certainly they can. But it does mean that women cannot serve as elders. That's what this passage teaches. Second, this passage is all about character. It is about character qualities for elders. It's not talent profiles. It's not lists of personality traits or skill levels. It's not even a list of educational requirements for an elder. A pastor may or may not be an excellent communicator, a hilarious jokester, someone who tells stories really well, or an inspiring vision caster, but he will be a godly man with a good reputation inside and outside the church. And the Lord will equip him with the gifts he needs and also surround him with other leaders who can make up for his lack of knowledge or skill in a specific area. Third, there's application for all of us here. Let's not read this just thinking, okay, that's for men who are going to be elders other than making sure that our elders are qualified. It doesn't matter to me. Most of these are character traits that all of us by the help of the Holy Spirit, should seek to live out the ones that apply to us, whether or not we ever hope to become an elder. And that means that men, women, boys, and girls should pursue godliness in these ways. After all, here's a top quiz, those of you who do last week. What is the theme of the book of Titus? Does anyone remember what we said is the theme of the book of Titus? Truth. Is the theme word, truth leads us somewhere to what? All right, let's say that together. Truth leads to godliness. I wasn't watching, I don't know if Johnny helped you, but good job, those of you who knew that. Truth leads to godliness. This list of qualifications begins in verse 6 and ends in verse 9. And where does Paul begin? Where does he start with his list? By talking about the character of a church leader in his own home. Let's read verse 6 again. Look at it with me. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Now you think I'm going to start with blameless. I'm actually going to start with the word man. But I want to be honest with you. The word man, the way we have it in English, doesn't appear in Greek. Instead, what we have is the indefinite word there, something like anyone or anybody, an indefinite. But guess what? That indefinite word, anybody, is singular and masculine. So we are talking about, and as we read the rest of the passage, it's clear that we're talking about men. We're talking about male. First, and key word here is blameless. Blameless means above reproach. If you have a different translation with you, you might have above reproach. It also means unaccused. Or as the Amplified Bible says, 
a man of unquestionable integrity. It is not sinless perfection. If it were, I would not be up here. And we would never have any elders for this or any church because nobody's perfect. Jesus is the only one who's perfect. It doesn't mean sinless perfection, but it does mean that he doesn't have anything in his life that anyone can take hold of. I'm going to try to illustrate it this way. How many of you like to drink coffee? I know some of you do. All right. What vessel do you normally put your coffee in? This is not a trick question. Yes? A mug. Or we sometimes call it a cup. A coffee cup. Tell me about your mug or your coffee cup. What does it look like? You've got a sand cloth one, okay? So they can be different characters, different designs, but what do most mugs or coffee cups have in common? Thank you. A handle. Most, probably not all, I'm sure you'll tell me about the exceptions later, most coffee cups will have a handle. Why? Because it's a hot beverage. And you're, sometimes it's pleasant, you're going to be warm, but other times you're going to burn yourself it's really hot coffee. So that's the picture I want you to have in your mind. Here is a mug. Here is a mug or a coffee cup with no handle. What does that mean? That means there's nothing we can grab onto. That's what blameless means. If you'll just tuck that away, that's a picture of what blameless means. There's nothing for which anyone can accuse this man and therefore harm the testimony of God or his church. There's nothing to grab onto in that way. This characteristic is at the top of the list, and it's even repeated. We'll see it again in just a minute in verse 7. So blameless, the husband of one wife. And literally this means a one-woman man. Now this phrase means a lot more than he's married to only one woman at a time. It means more than that. Yes, it is true that a qualified elder cannot be a polygamist, can't have more than one wife. But that probably didn't need to be put in the list. We would understand that from other passages in the Bible. I'm not qualified to be an elder just because I'm married or just because I'm married to one woman. That's not what this is saying. But a qualified elder is internally and externally pure. And he is completely faithful to his wife. That's what that phrase means. On the negative side, this phrase means that an elder isn't a flirt. He won't put himself into compromising situations with another woman. He won't pursue close friendships or become emotionally attached to any woman other than his wife or relative. He'll put safeguards in place to protect that most sacred and exclusive human relationship. He won't look at pornography or view inappropriate material or read inappropriate material or watch inappropriate plays or movies that would cause him to lust after someone who is not his wife. On the positive side, he will love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He will seek to build up his wife spiritually by the word. He will love him, love his wife as he loves himself. He will nourish and cherish her. All those can be found in Ephesians 5. 1 Peter 3 adds that he will dwell with her according to knowledge, and he will give honor to her. Guys, who are married, does your wife know that she is number one in your human relationships? 
do other people know that your wife is number one in your relationships? Particularly your kids. Because we're going to talk about those next. Having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Now, we're in luck here because we don't even know what insubordination or dissipation means, so we can just move on. We need to find out what those mean. The word faithful, when it says faithful children, having faithful children, generally that word faithful, where it's translated other places, it's talking about believers, believing children, children who are following Christ. These believing children cannot be accused of, here's some synonyms to help us out, immorality or rebellion. In other words, no one would describe this elder's children who's still live at home, talking about mainly those children, as wild or rebellious or disobedient or uncooperative. Those are several synonyms to help us understand what those other words in our New King James have. Again, disqualification does not mean perfection. I'm not perfect, and my kids aren't perfect. And it's not saying that they have to be. But if I can't control my young children's behavior, if I can't lead my older children to Christ and disciple them, then I should not be trying to do that in God's will. Let's apply this a little bit further. An elder who has children will not provoke them to wrath or discourage them. Instead, he will teach his young children to obey him and his wife, and ultimately the Lord. He will teach his older children to honor him and his wife. He will bring them up in the nurture and admonition, that is, the discipline and the verbal instruction of the Lord. Before we finish these elder qualifications for the home, let's take a step back for a minute. The words wife and children here suggest that the elders are married and have children. That is not a command, but it is an assumption of what is usually the case. And I realize that some of you probably have questions that are going through your mind at this point. Can a man who has never been married be an elder? Can a widower be an elder? Can a widowed and remarried man be an elder? Can a divorced man be an elder? Can a divorced and remarried man be an elder? And other variations go on from there. Now, I believe that any of those men could be an elder. But further clarification would be necessary, especially in the case of one who is divorced or one who is divorced and remarried. And what about the children? Does an elder have to be a father? Can a father have unbelieving children and be an elder? Can a father have rebellious children and be an elder? And again, I'm going to say potentially yes, but that situation, that type of situation would require input from other elders. That's one of the strengths of having multiple elders, is that other men can see me and my life and my marriage and my family and my children and make observations of what's going on. Here's what I'd like to recommend. Before we try to consider every possible scenario and look for all of the exceptions to the rule, let's just take the rule at face value, okay? 
and I'm not saying I won't discuss it. You're welcome to ask me any of those questions. We can talk through situations after, that's fine. But in what we're gonna talk about as a group today, I'd like to focus on the rule. And the rule is that most qualified elders will be married only once. Most qualified elders will have believing children who love God and live for God. And let's not forget what I believe is the most important rule of interpreting the Bible, and that's looking at the context. So what is the context of what he's saying about this one woman man and one who has his children in line? What, what comes right before that? What comes right after that? Look at it. What does your Bible say? What you're going to find is that Paul frames these qualifications by the broadest qualification, blameless. You see that at the beginning of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7? Paul says an elder must be blameless. So whatever has happened in your home life, or whatever is currently happening in your home life, it must not give others ammunition to make an accusation against the character of that elder. Whatever is playing out in that home life that's raising a question, either in his own life or in the life of other elders who are observing his life, the issue is blamelessness. Can that situation continue, whatever it looks like, in my life, in my family life, and have me continue to be blameless in our congregation and surrounding community? That's the question we should be asking. And that's the wisdom that the Holy Spirit will give as we weigh those kind of situations, those one-off situations, let's weigh them within the confines of blamelessness. I have one other question for you before we leave this first verse. Verse 6. The first verse of the qualifications. Why did Paul start with the elders' home life? I think the answer can be found in Paul's advice to Timothy in the parallel passage. This is 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. I'll show it to you on the screen. An elder must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Men who manage their families well love their wives well, share the gospel with their children, and disciple them well. And those type of men will be likely to shepherd God's people well. Verse 7 continues, For a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. So now we come to the word bishop. And reminder from a few minutes ago, bishop means the same thing as elder, means the same thing as pastor, shepherd, overseer. Here's that word blameless again. Why did Paul repeat himself? Why does this concept bear repeating? Well, the Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it this way. An overseer serves as a steward of God. Damage to a church leader's reputation is damage to God's reputation. That's how serious this is. When it says steward, that's not a word that we use very often anymore. But the word steward means one who manages something that belongs to somebody else. 
Those of you familiar with the Old Testament, think of Joseph. Remember, he was promoted in Potiphar's house so that he was in charge of everything that was there. Potiphar didn't even know what was going on. But none of that stuff belonged to Joseph. It all belonged to Potiphar. That's the picture. And as we look at other passages in the Bible, in Matthew 25 and 1 Corinthians 4, there's a characteristic that is very important for a steward. Do you know what it is? Faithfulness. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So in this case, the church congregation belongs to God. And an elder must lead the people well because he is accountable to God to do so. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Speaking to believers, speaking to the flock, obey those who have who rule over you and be submissive. Why? For they watch for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. That's part of my job description and the other elders who are here also, that we are supposed to be watching out for you. Those of you who are members of this church to pray for you, to encourage you, to disciple you. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Why? Because we have to give an account to God. So if it's sobering at all to you that people are looking out for you, caring for you, think how daunting it is at times to think, I must give account to God for the people that he's entrusted to our care. For the rest of verse 7, Paul lists five negative traits. What a pastor should not be and what a pastor should not do. Let's look at these. Not self-willed. Self-willed means overbearing and arrogant. An elder should not always insist on having his own way. Selfish, self-focused, stubborn men are not qualified to be elders. Not quick-tempered. And I, I looked this up. Most Translations have it as quick-tempered, sounding like somebody who has a hot head, somebody who's easily angered, quickly angered. And I think there's an element of truth to that. Um, but a few translations say not irritable. That's a good one. And one says not wrathful, not full of wrath. According to David Guzik, the Greek word used here actually refers to more of a settled state of anger than a flash of occasional bad temper. It speaks of a man who has constant, simmering anger and who nourishes his anger against others. He's not forgiving. He's going to carry that grudge. He's going to hold that against that person. Close to the idea of a bitter man. And in reality, it's probably both. It's not that I'm going to fly off the handle easily. That wouldn't be fit an elder but also that I should not be unforgiving, that I should not be bitter, that I should not have anger under the surface all the time. James 1, 19 and 20, excellent verses to memorize if you struggle, as many of us do, with anger from time to time. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That's why it's all of us. 
not given to wine. It can be translated not over fond of wine. Not sitting long at wine. Wine in this context would be any alcoholic beverage. We, we can apply it that way. We can apply it by extension to any type of substance that's going to alter my mind. Now we know that drunkenness is condemned as a sin for anyone and everyone throughout Scripture. Read Proverbs, there are other places as well. We have a command in Ephesians that says, Do not be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, not talking particularly about drunkenness here. This person, determining whether he's qualified to be an elder, we're going to have to ask, is he enamored with alcohol? Is this something that he's fascinated by and pursues and spends a long time with? A qualified elder is not going to pursue beer, wine, alcohol. And they're not going to encourage others to do so either. There's much that we can say about a lot of these. I'm trying to get through the passage. But on any of these... If there's something hitting home, or there's something that, but what about, let's talk about it. I have discussion questions on the back of your bulletin to, to try to spur additional conversations with your family or with somebody else as you get together this week. Those of you who've been around our church long enough know that I, I'm honest about what the Bible says. Drinking is not labeled as a sin in the Bible, drunkenness is. But I can point to plenty of passages that tell us that pursuing wine, pursuing strong drink is unwise. And some of you can testify in your own life or a family member's life that it didn't bring blessings to your family. Not violent. So often, alcohol and violence can go together. But not violent in action or in speech. This man is not a bully. He is not combative. He's not looking for a fight. He doesn't have a chip on his shoulder. He's not just waiting for the opportunity to lay into somebody. And on the negative list, this last one, not greedy for money. He's not in the ministry for what he can get out of it financially. But even more so, he's not covetous. He just needs a little bit more, he needs a little bit more, he needs a little bit more. He's not greedy. What's the opposite of that? He would be generous. That's what I pray for myself. Started a few years ago. I was, we have parents and older friends who are very generous, and I started praying, God, help me to be generous with my kids. And that's what this man's about. He's not going to be greedy for money. So to summarize these five that are negative, I think it's safe to say that this type of man is not addicted to himself, anger, any substance, violence, or money. He's not addicted to those things. But then Paul switches back to positive statements. There are six of these in verse 8. But hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Hospitable, 
though you're probably aware, it literally means a lover of strangers. This is someone who goes out of his way to host and to help other people. He likes to be around people. He likes to serve them. In part because he's a lover of what is good. And some of your translations may say a lover of good things or a lover of good people. It's both. It's not actually defined there. But it's, he's a lover of what is good. How do I know what's good? Well, a few weeks ago we talked about Philippians 4 8. That's a really good filter. Whatever is good, honest, just, virtuous, praiseworthy. Those are the things that we should love. Love what is good, good things, good people. Sober minded does not mean that your elder cannot have a sense of humor. Rather, it means that he takes serious matters seriously. And so several modern translations use the word sensible here. Then we have the word just. It means upright. It means virtuous. I like what I've done in one of my commentaries. One who practices what he preaches. That's what that's talking about. Someone who's just, upright. Then has the right relationship with God. Holy means different. It means set apart. Unpolluted. Devout. And then this last one says self-control, or we can say discipline. Someone who is held in check, someone who is restrained, someone who does not live according to his emotions. Warren Wiersbe wrote, he must discipline his desires, he must keep his mind and body under control as he yields to the Holy Spirit. Self-control is the last fruit of the Spirit in the list that Paul gives us in Galatians 5. And you all know what I'm talking about here. You understand self-control. You understand discipline. People who are athletes or have a hobby that, that requires a lot of time and, and precision, you have to work at that. You have to be consistent. You have to be faithful. That's what this is talking about. A disciplined person. Now, if you mark in your Bible, I would encourage you to highlight or circle or box around blameless in verse 6 blameless in verse 7, and self-control in verse 8. Why? Well, I believe Paul gave us bookends for these qualifications, beginning with blameless and ending with self-control. In my opinion, any characteristic, I should say any other characteristic on this list can be described by one or both of these terms. So ideally, learn everything here. But if you can't remember all that, that's okay. How about you remember blameless and self-control? You'll be off to a really good start in remembering what the qualifications for an elder are. In the last verse for our section today, we get to the skill or ability that sets elders apart from other servants of the Lord, and that is teaching. Verse 9 says, Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict holding fast, clinging to, hanging on to, what? The faithful word. Now the translation has the trustworthy message as he has been taught. That he may be able, by sound doctrine, we could also say by healthy doctrine, healthy teaching, both to exhort, instruct, encourage, and convict, which would mean rebuke. Who's he going to do that for? Those who contradict. Those who contradict what? Those who contradict false teaching. Those who contradict the true teaching. Those who are false teachers. 
one of my commentaries summarized this verse very well. The elders have a twofold ministry of God's word, building up the church with healthy doctrine and refuting the false teachers who spread unhealthy doctrine. That's what this is talking about. A paraphrase has, he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. So he has three verses the way we have it in English with all these characteristics. And then he talks about his own life. He has to hold fast right teaching, right doctrine. And then he has to be able to share that with others. And using that, he needs to refute, review those who are not being faithful to that doctrine. Now, where does that leave us for today? At the beginning, I said I want us to see three things. God's design for the church includes order. Paul left Titus there. He said, put things in order. Straighten things out in the church. How so? Well, he's going to do that through right teaching and through the right kind of leaders. Every church congregation should appoint biblically qualified elders. Why? Because God commands it and because God is good for you. It's what God designed, that there would be shepherds looking after the sheep. And then believers in general, and men in particular, should pursue these qualifications. Which qualifications? Verses 6 through 9. And after studying this, this week, and after reviewing it with you again, I'd like to remind us that it's not just about a checklist. I could read through this and knowing that I am imperfect and knowing where my struggles are, I could be very discouraged and think, I have so much room to grow. There may be an, another man or even a, a woman or a child. I want to remind you of something that I learned, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. I think it was in a shipping from video series that we were doing back in Maryland. And that was one of the first times I've heard anybody explain to me the difference between guilt and conviction. Because there are times that I can feel guilty, and Satan, or even my own self, just beating up on me. And you're no good, you messed up that again, da 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 da. That's not from the Lord. The Holy Spirit convicts us, and it's specific. Guilt is general. And when thoughts like that come in my head, Romans 8.1 is my friend. Because there is therefore no, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who walk according to the Spirit. And we have to squash those feelings when they come in, those thoughts. They're wrong. But maybe as we study this today, don't think, oh, I can't do all that. No, what is the one thing that the Holy Spirit may have prompted you as we were going through this? Because the conviction will be specific and it will be biblical. It won't be vague, it won't be general. That, that's from the devil. But when the Holy Spirit pinpoints something, we need response to it. So men, do these characteristics describe you? If not, where is the Holy Spirit prompting you to change today? All of you can ask yourself that question. Men, women, children, where is the Holy Spirit prompting you to change today? 
perhaps nothing came to mind. I would encourage you to pray about it, think about it, and I'll be quiet in a minute so you can do that. But maybe, maybe nothing comes to your mind. And praise the Lord for the, the progress that He has made in your life. You know what else you can do? You can encourage and pray for the men in your life, the elders here in this fellowship. You can pray that the Lord would reveal to us as the congregation, to us as the leaders, additional elders and deacons who can serve this church body in the future. Women, are you encouraging your husband or your father or your son to this type of living? Young men, are you making decisions in your life right now that will set you on a path to being this kind of man? Young women, if it's the Lord's will for you to marry, look for a husband who is pursuing these kind of character traits. I try to encourage my daughters, perhaps someone, if God has them get married, marry somebody who would aspire to be an elder or a deacon in the church. Young men in my family aspire to be an elder deacon. God may not have you serve that way. But what would be the harm in pursuing a life that reflects these qualities? Because that's in large part what we're all supposed to be doing as we live the Christian life together. Now I know that today's message has been addressed primarily to believers, almost exclusively to believers. But understand that if you're concerned for your soul today, if you don't know how to have forgiveness for your sins, would you please see one of us? We'd love to share other verses with you, pray with you, talk with you. Right now I'm going to ask all of you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm just going to be quiet, not for a long time, maybe 30 seconds or so, and give you an opportunity to pray and ask God to show you how he wants you to respond from what we have spent the last <clears throat> Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and his guidance, his work in our lives. Lord, I pray for us who are serving in this congregation and others. That you would help us to continue to grow spiritually to become more like you and to fulfill what you called us to do would you show us in this congregation additional men who can serve with us to lead this congregation Lord would you grow the fruit of the spirit in our lives Show us with divine accuracy what sin we need to confess and forsake and what good works we need to put on. Have your way in us. Make us more like Jesus. We pray that in his name.